Hello and welcome to Live from the Space Shed, a podcast all about space and science hosted by me, John Spooner, and me. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, I mean you. <laughs> Mini John. Long story short, a few years ago I accidentally set up my own space agency based out of the shed at the bottom of my garden. Turns out that if you go around telling people you're the director of human spaceflight operations for the unlimited space agency wearing an orange spacesuit, more people than you might think want to play along. And now the British astronaut Tim Peake is our patron and he took me with him to space. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, all right, he took you with him to space. So Minnie John became Unser's first astronaut. Since then, we've been touring in UNSA's mobile headquarters, The Space Shed, to festivals like Latitude and Blue Dot, telling stories, talking to some super cool space and science people, and we've recorded our chats so you can find out about their amazing work as well. Yes, MJ? You mean in the space shed? We live in the space shed because... Well, because it's our home. It's just where we live. I don't know, never really thought about it. I guess we'll always live here. Or we could live somewhere else. Would you like to live somewhere else? I am the grown-up, yes. But like I say, I haven't thought about it, so I don't know either. Sorry. My friend Jacqueline, she lives in the Maasai Mara. Yeah, the Maasai Mara. It's in southern Kenya, in Africa. We could live there. No, she doesn't live in a shed. She lives in a mud hut. Yeah, she built it herself. Jacqueline is cool. Super cool. Before she moved to Kenya, she was chief scientist of the United Nations Environment Programme and executive director of the European Environment Agency. Told you, super cool. Would you like to find out more about her life and work? Okay, let's get into this episode of Live from the Space Shed, recorded when the Space Shed landed in London for New Scientist Live 2019, and we were joined by the Gresham Professor of Environment at University College London and the Masai Mara University in Kenya, Jacqueline McGlade. My name is John, John Spooner. I am the Director of Human Space Flight Operations here at the Unlimited Space Agency. Welcome to Answers HQ, the Space Shed. Give it up for the Space Shed! Yeah. Yes, so we're here. We've been here the last four days having a lovely time. We've got two more launch attempts today. This one sadly wasn't successful. Uh, If they're not successful as well, which is I would say likely, given some of the obstacles that are in our way today. Uh, At 3.15, I'll be telling the story... Well, anyone here interested in saving the planet? Yeah, yeah, okay. If you've ever wondered how you might help to do that, uh, got some ideas for that. 3.15, 4.15, we've got... Professor Vlatko Vidral, who is a professor of quantum information science. He's going to tell you all about teleportation, if that's your thing. But now, genuinely, deeply honoured 
and enormously pleased to be joined in the space shed by someone that later uh, this afternoon will be closing one of the bigger stages here. She is an extraordinary, not just scientist, but human being. We're going to talk to her, find out why that is. Would you please give a massive New Scientist Live welcome to Jacqueline McGlade! Jacqueline. Hi, John. Such a huge pleasure, like I say. I come in peace. (laughs) Well, hopefully we all do today. Um, Thank you so much for agreeing to come in. I know that you're preparing as well to go over... Which stage are you on later? Earth stage. Earth, of course you are. Closing gig. Yes. But before then, I've given you quite a big introduction there. And I was asking you earlier, how do we... What job titles do we talk about? How do I introduce you? Because there's been an extraordinary amount of things that you have achieved and done. Where do you start when you try to explain? I kind of uh, start with space. I've done space exploration and space science, and I've been to the bottom of the ocean. Well, not quite the deepest, but I've been in a submarine. Uh, I fly aircraft and helicopters. So I've been lots of places where no one else has been. So I'm an explorer, but I love science. You worked in climate science with yeah. the UN, yeah. with the European Environment Agency, yeah. um, and you've spent, I hate to ask how many years, but really, just so we know the depth of your experience. Okay, so I spent about 40 years working on climate, working in, in the oceans, and then I worked for the UN, I was a chief scientist there, and I, I did lots of stuff, but I also did lots of work with governments and policymakers, trying to get them to do the right thing. But my favorite thing to do is to work with young scientists and to show them all the things that you can do from science. And you can do just loads of things. So that's my passion. You really have been at the, at the knife edge of not just uh, working with governments. When you say about getting them to do the right thing, what do you mean getting governments to do the right thing? I guess with climate... Until you feel it, it's really difficult to persuade people to do things. And so sometimes when government officials get into a room, it's like an arms race. You know, I'm not going to move an inch until you move an inch. And then it gets to be very negative. So I try to make it very simple. So with climate change, I always think about it as it's like your bank account. And you've got so much money in your bank account... And climate change is kind of running it down. You've only got so much money to spend. You might think it's carbon, but basically that's what you've got to spend. And it's going much more quickly than people think. And when it's all gone, it's all gone. So I try to kind of give them a wake-up call, make them feel like they should be taking care of people. How successful have you been with that? Quite. Yeah? Quite. I'm, I'm I'm the kind of awkward person in the corner. What's your favourite awkward achievement? My favourite awkward achievement, without naming names, but a country that is very, very uh, tied to the production of oil, kind of in the middle of the, of the earth, so to speak, uh, persuading them that they had to agree with the agreement of the science community that climate change was human-induced. And this is a very, very big, powerful country but you don't want to name them because you're assuming everyone's got there. Okay, it's Saudi Arabia. Yeah, I, just, I mean, I was going to say if you weren't. So, it's that's Saudi ex- Arabia. That's an extraordinary achievement, just given the political context yeah. for that, right? Yeah. yeah. And you talk as well about you can't really... The way you talk about not being able to really feel or s- understand the effects of climate change until you've experienced them, but you have experienced them. Yes. So uh, let me tell you a little bit about things that I've done. 
So when I was living in uh, Copenhagen, I took very, very rich people up onto the ice cap in Greenland, which is three kilometers thick, but it is melting really quickly. And what I would try to do is I'd take them up to the top of the ice cap, and then I would say to them, I'm going to leave you here until you believe in climate change. So several hours later, I would come back and say, do you want to, do you want to go home tonight? You know, are you going to change your company's strategy about climate change? Yes, yes. Anyway, and they did. They would come back and several of them shut down their factories. They changed the whole way they did it. But you know, the most uh, incredible thing for Greenland, you read a lot about it. But you know, there are people who actually live around the ice cap. They're called the Inuit. And there's a really, really good old friend of mine And he goes every day up onto the ice cap and he sees every day the big, big lakes of melting water, blue, blue lakes. And the way he describes it, he says it's like the melting of the heart of a man when he sees the ice cap melting. And that's what I mean about really experiencing climate change. And many of you don't see that. When you're living in a city, you have some rain, it's a bit inconvenient and so on. But where I live now... I actually live and breathe climate change. The people I live with are in daily peril of essentially dying. And that makes it all the more real and all the more urgent as to why we have to do something. I, I brought some pictures. So I live in the bush in Africa um, where all of the really, really big animals, the lions and the buffaloes, the crocodiles and all those animals live. So they live around where I live. I live, in, I live in a mud hut in the bush. And unfortunately, because of climate change, it's really, really difficult. So some of the people who are my warriors, so I, I'm married to the chief, so I have warriors. And they have a very, very special uh, response to climate. So I'm going to play you a song with a warrior. You'll see a picture of him. He's one of my chief warriors. So this is a song that the warriors sing where they are now and they're out hunting for new food which they used to eat hundreds of years ago and they're rediscovering food that will help us survive climate. So they're going to find plants that are not going to poison us. And what these guys find could be the crops of the future. In other words, what you are going to be eating in the future. So that's how important this is. So we can go on to the next... I'll just show you where I live and then you'll get the idea of how on the edge it is. So these are the elders. Now these gentlemen are very old. They may not look very old, but they're about 100 years old. Particularly the one in the middle. He's my father-in-law, so he's about 102. And what does he eat? Well, he eats some milk and herbs, and maybe meat once or twice a month. That's basically all we eat, okay? Not, not much else. But these plants are effectively what keep people alive. And these are the young warriors. So if any of you boys want to come out, you want to come out, learn how to be a warrior? All right. Now turn around, face everybody. Right, now a measure of a good warrior is how high you can jump. So off you go, jump. Oh, yes, very good. Excellent. 
You have to be more training. But anyway, depending on how high you jump, then you can become a real warrior. So when you come out to the bush, you can learn how to be a warrior. So these are the young warriors. And they learn about climate change. They learn about what's happening in the world. Next picture. These are the ladies that have to make do with not very much. And here we are. And this is about food for a village of 400. So 400 people are going to be basically relying on this. So not very much food. But this is made from a special flower of a plant that we're now growing called millet, which does not have the toxic mechanism, which I'll tell you about if you come to my talk at the end of the day. Next slide. These are some of the lovely girls who live in the village who are all emancipated, go to school. Next slide. And here's the real problem. So there's very, very little water. And to survive here, you have to bring water from the mountains. You have to harvest water in many ways. And if you don't, you effectively get a lot of infections. So climate change is a big, big deal where we are. Next slide. Uh, this is my house. It's my mud hut. So uh, you're welcome to come and visit anytime you want. Next slide. These are the slightly older warriors. So they've already learned about the plants to, that we can survive and live on. We also have lots of bees and the drought affects the bees, so even the bees have to adapt to climate change. They have to find water in different ways, go to different plants. So we have to find flowers for the bees to survive. Next slide. That's my village, all the mud huts. And next slide. So this is what happens when the drought's really bad, and you've got to have a lot of food to feed a lot of people. But we don't want to do that. We don't want to have to rely on people giving us food. So we're trying to find ways to tackle climate change and make sure everybody has enough food to eat. Uh, and that's not just us, that's also the wildlife, because the wildlife also suffer from drought. So these animals are pretty skinny compared to how they normally are. And what I do is, from my little mud hut, I use space to predict where we're going to have drought and where we're going to find food and that. So I have 4G in my, in my mud hut, and I have space in my mud hut. But that's what happens when it all goes wrong. And last year, we lost 4,000 cattle. Uh, so now, everyone's decided just to have a small number of cattle, and we can look after them. So the amazing thing about indigenous people is that they are much more adaptable, much more flexible than probably most of us in this room. When things change, they change. It's a choice of live, living or not living. But they do change, and they change their ideas in a really in a good way, in a sustainable way. And these are two people who I work with. So we bring, we bring plants to life that will be the future generation of our crops. So he's a Libon, and this is one of the warriors who helps me find plants. And so that's what it should look like. Lush grass, vultures, buffaloes, wildebeest. That's a good ecosystem. So that's where I live. That's a, that's a view from my hut. Not bad. Um, and just for clarity... Because everyone looks pretty fit and healthy. They do now, yeah. Yeah, they do now. But this, uh, isn't, this isn't how it's always been. This is the, adapt the deep adaptation yes. that people are making. That change that has happened in your village, uh, that change is happening here now. Absolutely. How, how bad are you expecting it to be? Okay, so what I'm living in is a sort of an extreme where there's no safety net. You know, you can't go into an air-conditioned building. You can't do various things. You can't just go and turn a tap on and get more water. So my point is that if we can help people who are living in the very extreme to the point where they're thriving, even though there is climate change, 
but by making really, really big changes in their lives and adapting, then surely, you know, we're going to have to do the same thing here. The question is, how do we do it when you've got buildings and you've got 10 million people living in a city? And it's not so easy. Here we've got 670,000 people and here we've got 10 million people. But what I learned living in the Maasai and living with the tribe and being a, being a member of the tribe is that essentially you have to sort of dump the past because the past is not going to help you in the future. It really is not going to help us. And, and don't plan too far into the future because now the future is very, very uncertain. Concentrate on today. Concentrate on what is uh, sustainable, what is affordable, what will work for you today. And spend time, like we do here in the village, checking in everyone, you know, like a community. So you grow plants as a community, you grow food as a community, you gather knowledge as a community. And I'm not saying it's the only answer, but it's a very, very different way of doing it. So what the Maasai have done is they have shown me that they already know a lot of the science, even though many of them have never been to school. They have a deep understanding of how nature works, where water will be, where animals go, etc. And we've kind of lost that. So I'm thinking that here in London, having communities talking about where you get your food from, uh, where we get our water from, are you looking out for your neighbours, all of that actually really matters now. It really matters. So that's it. That's the Maasai story, right? Okay. <laughs> well, I would also just say, just it's, um, because I think people are still finding it maybe a little bit difficult to even start the conversation sometimes because it feels like it could be really terrifying actually yes a very scary thing but we have to start at least talking about it in order to then get to the place where we can choose to yeah. really radically change how we think and then act about yeah, it. not to scare people i mean you don't yeah. have to do fear but you have to do it together we yes. actually have to do these things together so we're gonna twin my little village here harbury with the village there and and already you can see the exchange of ideas is fantastic very very cool okay who's got a question for Jacqueline um I watched this advert that said uh, if climate change cheaps up there is a possibility of uh, humans being extinct in 2100 is this possible if we don't do something many people will die but that's the horrible story right because where I live, people do die. We get it wrong and they don't get water and they don't get food and then things happen. But you're lucky because you live here and there's lots of people who are going to take care of you. But what you have to do is to say, well, my friends, it's not just you on your own. It's actually all your friends are going to have to be happy all right, and thriving. So maybe you should have a conversation about, well, how would you like to live? What's the kind of food that you can have? What's the kind of things that you can do? which won't hurt the planet. Okay? Do you mind me How old are you? Nine. You're nine. So in 2100... Oh, you'll, you'll be alive. Yeah, Absolutely. you should be alive, but I think... I mean, the old men in my village, they live for 100 years, right? So you're going to live for 100 years because you're going to live like them, right? We would all like it to be all right for... What's your name? Oscar. Oscar, right? Okay, we'll do our best, Oscar. Um, how much rain... Um, comes to the village where you live not very much now and it comes at the wrong time so we have something called the long rains and the short rains and they didn't come this year and they didn't come last year so we missed about 
half a meter of rain. So yeah, it makes it pretty difficult. Uh, I saw that you could, in climate change, some so animals like we need will like they'll be extinct, and and the animals we lost is about 400 animal species have been extinct. He's just wanting to check that that's not fake news. No, <laughs> just saying. There you go. How old are you? Eight. Eight. There's the eight-year-old knows that. What advice would you give um, to a young person who wanted to get started in like the environmental or climate change sector? Oh, I mean, you could start many ways. You could start through creating a local community, like a community assembly, where people can actually speak about all their concerns and invite scientists to come in. Um, you could do an intern, or you could essentially join a group that's actually doing something very specific, like energy or water or so on. Um, there's loads of ways in which you can help, for example, uh, very locally, like you can do planting of trees. It is extremely important. Trees are very efficient at changing our world, really important. Doing projects on water, cleaning water, making sure we recycle. So there's a whole range of things that you can do personally. But if you really want to make an impact, then you need to get your voice heard. And getting your voice heard, like you just did, is absolutely the first step. So I would say, step number one done, tick, right? What are you going to write? Are you going to write to your friends? Are you going to write a blog? All of that. It all counts, okay? But just remember, every click, every tweet that you like, every Facebook costs us 0.02 micrograms of carbon. So if you do a lot of them, you're going to use a lot of carbon up. So use them wisely, okay? It's because of the electricity, the energy, when you click. It's a really good question as well, and it's a question that we get asked a lot. It's something that we've been trying to deal with. We've made a little website, which is called How to Save the Dot Earth, which has, we've asked lots of scientists and activists, what can I, we do? And five levels. Level one, something you can do with one click, you could use really well, to level five, which is if you wanted to dedicate your life to helping this. So, uh, How to Save the Dot Earth. Thanks for letting me do that. Hi. How bad would it affect the Earth? How bad? How bad? Well, you know, every planet has its time in the sun. And eventually, planet Earth will come to an end. Long, long, long after you've gone. Long, long after maybe we've gone. So, how bad will it be? Probably everything will be livable. But you have to pay attention. So, maybe one of the things you do is you might keep a record. You could start saying, how many hot days are there? How many rainy days are there? Maybe your school could do that. Maybe your class could do that. So learning about what's happening in the climate, yourself, looking out the window, keeping track, you could do that kind of stuff, right? That would be really good. We had uh, my friend Chaitanya, uh, who is a senior policy advisor with the Green Alliance. His take on that as well is that it's not all doom and gloom. If we do change and adapt and make the changes, the payoff, the potential payoff is brilliant. We could have this very beautiful, very positive place, cleaner air, um, we're fitter, healthier, we live for longer, better communities. So the rewards for the change are potentially really high. We can live in a beautiful place. Yeah. we just got to figure out which things we have to solve, which problems we have to solve. And, uh, you know, we've got a lot of clever people. I'm sure you might be one of them. We're going to come to you in a moment. We've got, yes... So, how, what does climate change affect, like, the plants in your area and stuff? 
and how bad is it? How bad is the effects on the plant? And you know, you mentioned that certain like plant has climate change an effect on that one. Yeah. So the climate affects plants. Yeah, yeah, it does. It makes them do things which can be not very good for us. It can do things to protect themselves and create a little poison. Unfortunately, yeah. So I'm going to tell you about that in my talk. So now the science has to tell us which ones we shouldn't eat and which ones we should eat. So yeah, climate can affect our plants. Do you ever have a storm? A storm. Well, maybe. Ooh, what's yeah. the effects of climate change on, on storms? Yeah. Wow. Well, we think that now we've seen all the evidence coming in that there are more intense storms. So you maybe heard about the one in Japan, where the rugby was. And then there were lots in America, so all these big hurricanes. So we've always had storms, but now they're, in some cases, happening more often. But the most important thing is they're more intense. So that means they're stronger when they come. More rain, more wind, because the ocean is heating up. And what happens is, as the ocean heats up, the winds actually pick up, take up more water. So when they meet the land, whoosh, and they just dump it all on the land. So yeah. How many trees do you think you need to stop climate change? Oh, that's a really good question. That is one of the best questions. Right, now, so everyone thinks that planting trees is dead easy. And in one way it is. However, trees, probably like you and me, have places that we would like to live in and places that we don't like to live in. So it's really important when you plant a tree that you plant the right tree in the right place, okay? And when you've planted the right tree in the right place, then you've got one of the best machinery to trap all that carbon that's in the atmosphere. So what you need to do is you need to look around where you live, and you might see an oak tree, and you might see all these different kinds of trees, right? And you need to ask someone and say, well, what would be the best tree for me to plant? Probably not a palm tree, probably not bamboo, but we estimate that you'd have to plant billion trees a billion that's like every six people in on the planet six or seven people would have to plant a tree and then we have a chance but we got to get doing it as soon as possible so we're going to plant a billion trees where i live in africa to get the whole thing going but you got to plant the right tree right place okay you you don't have to do all billion no 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 no, no. get all your friends to do yeah, it as yeah. well and Let's put a geotag on it and then watch it grow and it, it's your tree right why don't we take a little a little pledge um who here would like to raise their arm and pledge that this year we've got a couple of months left okay turn to the person next to you if you know them and say let's do that i'll do hope make me do that yeah we'll start that going okay good Hi. Hi. And there's a lot of discussion about veganism and how if we were all vegan, that would kind of solve climate change. And I wondered how important or how much of an effect you actually think a lot of people going vegan. What do you think about that? Plant-based food will always be, in a way, a better up than if you have many of the commercial breeds of livestock that we have today. But there are livestock. For example, where I live, we live on cows and sheep and goats. Not very many. One per village every two weeks okay there's not a lot of meat but everything get eaten to the bone okay but inside the the bones there are things which are really good for humans but i otherwise i i have no option other than to eat a, a vegan have a vegan diet but now i have milk as well when i go to the village because there's no other protein 
So what I say to people is, think about where you're getting your food from. Think about the impact it's having. And a shift to plant-based most days is going to be good for you, for your health. And almost certainly, it will reduce the, the pressure on, on, on planet Earth. I'm not saying it's not a personal decision, but if you really think about where your food is coming from, and you think about all the possible things that can contaminate the food chain, your exposure is also much more reduced if you eat plants. Is that because you're considering it, or you're already there? We eat about 75% vegan now, but I That's just wondered great. how much impact you thought huge, it would have. Yeah. Huge impact. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well done. Well done, um, yeah. I think we've got time, uh, time for one more. It seems to me that the governments in countries won't intervene and stop climate change until it becomes like a threat to humans. It seems like they'll let all the plants and animals die and only do something when we're in trouble. Yeah, so you see, I'm, I'm a bit of a civil disobedient activist in this one. So I'm, my feeling is that when politicians don't do stuff which is absolutely good for people and want to preserve some kind of self-exclusion zone, the best thing to do is take them to a place which is very uncomfortable and show them what it looks like, because there's nothing like seeing it. So in Kenya, and where I live, further in the north, there are people who literally are dying. And you just have to take people there and say, this is what climate change is doing. This is it. So shock tactics, I'm afraid, for many, many politicians is the only way. Yeah, but I'm, you know, I'm not, avo- I'm not averse to a bit of civil disobedience as well. Go in peace. I yes. think that was a sign, right? Yeah. <laughs> what I would ordinarily say is that Jacqueline isn't running away, but she does have to go and prepare for oh, yeah. her talk on main stage there. But you know what Jacqueline looks like now. You know that she's very approachable. So maybe after she's done her talk later, and if you see her, if you basically stalk her, you want to ask her a question, <laughs> then uh, do that. Uh, we are at UnTheatre, UN Theatre, on all of the socials. If you want to stay in touch with us there, how to save the dot earth. It could feel a little doom and gloomy, and it is a bit scary, but I really think it's amazingly useful to talk about it, keep those conversations going. It is possible to have a really positive impact and effect. Absolutely. Um, hold on to that. We can... We can fight this and we can make the changes that are needed. Hold on to that. But for now, would you please give a massive New Scientist Live round of applause. Thank Jacqueline you. McLean! Thank you. <laughs> so, what do you think, MJ? Shall we move to the Masai Mara? Yeah, it would be a big change. But, like Jacqueline says, we're all going to have to make some big changes anyway. And if we do make those changes, we can all together make a better and healthier place for us all to live in. (laughs) Of course, we can do that here for now. This is our home after all, so we should probably be working hardest to look after it. And the great thing about the spaceship is we can just hook it up to the space van and take it anywhere. Although I'm not sure our suspension is up to a trip across Africa, I'll be honest. Next time in the Space Shed, MJ will be hosting our final guest for this first season of Live from the Space Shed. Uh-huh. Yep, and because it's our last, for now, we have a special guest joining us. Uh-huh. It's your friend and mine, the BAFTA award-winning YouTuber and CBeebies presenter, Maddie Moat. Uh-huh. I know, right? Everyone loves Maddie. So, join us again next time for our final Space Shed launch attempt of the season with the awesome 
Maddie Moat. Live from the Space Shed is an unlimited theatre production with Season 1 brought to you in association with the Science and Technologies Facilities Council, the Cockcroft Institute, the Space and Arts Council of England, with special thanks to Dr. Rob Appleby of Manchester University. Our theme music is Go by Public Service Broadcasting, used with their extremely kind permission. Our sound engineer and editor is Andy Wood, with additional sound design by Elena Pena. The show is produced by John Spooner and Alice Massey, with support from our friends at Story Things. Live from the Space Shed is an unlimited theatre production on behalf of the Unlimited Space Agency. See you again for more... Live from the Space Shed, soon. Live from the Space Shed. See you for more. Live from the Space Shed soon. TheSpaceShed.com